tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 85th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we want to wish all of our listeners happy happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We know it's only Thanksgiving in America, but hey, we can all celebrate it today. Absolutely. So if anybody out there around the world who's listening are thankful, then hey, it's a Thanksgiving kind of day. Well, I know one of the things that we're thankful for here at History Goes Bump. Our ghosts and listeners. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know how thankful we are for the ghosts, but definitely for our (laughs) listeners. We we kind of wouldn't have a show if there weren't haunted. Well, that's true. So thank you, ghosts, and thank you, listeners. Yes, thank you. And thanks for sharing the show. We really appreciate it. We decided to do a special little Thanksgiving show. Usually we do a show every five days, so this is a little bit sooner than you would have normally thought. And while we could do the history of Thanksgiving, we thought that'd be a little redundant because we already talked a lot about Thanksgiving when we did our Plymouth show. So if you haven't listened to the Plymouth podcast, today would be a great day to do that. We thought we would share with you guys the legend of Indian corn. And then since we are history goes bump, we have to do something a little creepy. Just a little bit. So we're going to talk about the legend of the Wendigo too. The reason why we combine these two is because they come from the same Native American tribe, the Ojibwa, who a lot of you probably know as the Chippewa. But before we do that, we want to point you at our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to contact us via email, how can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We had a great time on our St. Augustine meetup. We got to meet Laura and Eric and Laura's mother, Carol. And my folks went with us. We had a great time. We had a great dinner, great tour, good company. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, the place we went to go eat is called Harry's, and it's a seafood bar and grill. And one of the reasons why I picked it is not only because Denise and I have been there before and really enjoyed the food, but it's also a haunted location. Yeah, so the bathroom is actually haunted at Harry's, and there's a young girl up there. It used to be her bedroom. Her name is Catalina. And I guess if you say bad words in the mirror, she doesn't like that. So everybody I was with that was of the female gender was up there tempting the spirits by swearing at the mirror. It was very cute. Laura was trying to figure (laughs) out the way to do it because another woman had come into the bathroom and was standing there. So she was throwing uh, cursory four-letter words into the middle of her little conversations that weren't, you know, like the D word. It wasn't major for that one. And then when that woman left... uh, Laura let it rip. And then she apologized to the spirit. It was really cute. (laughs) Nothing poked her. So then she said, well, I'm sorry, Catalina. You know, we thought, hey, I'd be haunting my old bedroom, too, if they turned it into a bathroom. No kidding. That was a statement that Diane's dad made, too. It's like that would be my my feelings. Denise, speaking of four letter words on the last episode, we talked a little bit about your use of a certain F word, and we've been having a bit of a conversation about that in the Spooktacular crew. My use of a word 13 or 14 years ago, but proceed. Anyway, Josh thought that it would be fabulous to hear the sweet little Denise use the F word. So could you give him a little shout out there? Okay, Josh. 
feng shui. <laughs> That's as good as it gets, I guess. We periscoped while we were, we periscoped out in front of Harry's. Then we also periscoped at the various places that we stopped on the Ripley's ghost train tour. We actually had an experience in Ripley's auditorium that we caught on Periscope. And I believe we have it on video, too. So we're going to edit that and we'll post it up into our YouTube and post it up on Facebook so that you guys can see what happened. But uh, what what had happened is you end the evening at Ripley's Auditorium and they take you into a room that they've converted into a little mini theater and they have slides that they're putting up of the history of the location. And of course, your tour guide tells you about Mr. X and Betty. And if you guys need a review of that story and you're not sure what we're talking about, that would be our very first podcast when we share that story there. But what she did is she had a flashlight and she put it over on, there was like a ledge on the wall and she just set it there. She turned it off and she told Betty if she would like to let us know that she was there, she could just turn on the flashlight. And then she went back to telling her story. And so Denise turned her camera over there so that she could videotape. I turned the periscope that way. I actually wasn't videotaping the flashlight as much. So you'll see in my video that it's kind of goes on up at the top. And then I focused on it because my EMF reader was going off like crazy when I got it away from me. As soon as I went towards the seats that were beside me, it started going like crazy and I was bringing it back. So that's what I was kind of videoing. Yeah, it was interesting, Denise. I have a feeling the spirits were liking you because your EMF was going off most of the evening while we were in the auditorium. You sure it's not just my electric personality? Yeah, no. (laughs) Because when you pulled it away from different areas, then it would turn back off. So I don't think it was you, especially because it seems like the closer you had it to you, the less it went off. So it didn't like me at all. So I have no electric personality. (laughs) But anyway, while the tour guide, her name was Kelsey, was telling the story, she was about, I don't know, five minutes into it. And boom, the flashlight turned on, which was pretty amazing to us. And I let people on Periscope know uh, there's nobody near that flashlight. The closest people to it would have been Denise and myself. So I don't know what uh, turned it on. But then she stopped what she was saying. She walked over to the flashlight and said, "Okay, Betty, I want to continue telling the story. So if you could turn off the flashlight, that would be great. And it kind of the light warbled a little bit. I would say it was almost like flashlights are either on or off, right? This one almost seemed to kind of dim a little bit and then brighten and then dim and then brighten. And then finally it went off. Almost like a dimmer switch off. Exactly. So it kind of faded out. So it was like fading in and out, fading in and out, and then it completely faded out. And so I know uh, Heather's reaction to that on Periscope was, holy crap. (laughs) And we were saying the same thing too. So We did have uh, an experience there at the auditorium. I don't know what turned on and off that flashlight. Was it the spirit of Betty or something else? I don't know, but I can't explain it. We have some people to welcome to the Spooktacular crew. All righty. We have Samantha Joe. Hey, Samantha Joe. Janet. Hey, Janet. Mim. Hi, Mim. And Mim hails from Scotland. She Very said she's cool. been enjoying our Scottish shows there. That we've I want to go Scotland. look at some of those in person. Absolutely. And Julie. Hi, Julie. Then we have some more reviews from iTunes. Infinite Gesture, five star. I found you guys through the Bizarre States podcast, and I'm so glad I started listening. You've been getting me through long work days. Thanks for such an awesome podcast. Well, thank you for that. Yes, thank you. And I wonder when all these employers are going to start paying us for our services of helping their employees get through their work days. There should be some kind of fee we charge. You know, know, we're helping your employees to have a good temperament, to get through the day. Shouldn't we get a little kickback or something? Absolutely. So talk to your bosses. No, just kidding. 
<laughs> Shantif253. Awesome five star. I love this podcast. I listen to it whenever the children allow me a little peace and quiet. I love to learn about dark history and anything paranormal. This podcast is a perfect mix. The hosts do their research and do it well before each episode. You can tell they love what they're doing. The two hosts have a great on-air relationship, making for an easy and fun listening experience. I just hope they keep it up and don't cancel the podcast. Ever. And that's in all caps. Ever. So I guess we'll be going on into the afterlife with our podcast. <laughs> we'll be broadcasting from heaven <laughs> instead of from the center of oddity in central That'd Florida. Be funny, and then somebody else is doing a podcast about the hauntings of Claremont, Florida. It's like, I don't know. It's these disembodied voices that just keep saying, hello, you spooktacular people. <laughs> yeah, there'll be somebody. It doesn't have to even be Claremont. It could just be some person broadcasting a podcast. It would be really fun if it was something like business. We're going to tell you how to invest. And then all of a sudden you hear these cranky little ladies in the background going, boo, boo. And Akon, 1986, one of my favorite podcasts, five stars. I love this podcast. I found it back in August thanks to the lineup newsletter. I've binge listened since and enjoyed every minute of it. These ladies make you feel like you're sitting and having a conversation with them rather than hosting a show. I love the knowledge and hard work that goes into each show and their love and commitment to this shows through in each episode. Well, thank you, Akon. We appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Kylie on Twitter gave us a nice shout out and shared the show with the people who are following her. We want to thank her for that. Thank you, Kylie. And Jessica over on the fan page left us a comment. She was talking about how we help her not to get through work, but through her insomnia. Oh, yes. Insomnia can be horrible for a lot of people. And I told her I know exactly how she's feeling since I've been thrust into menopause. I know exactly what insomnia is. I spend most of my evenings tossing and turning. And when I'm not tossing and turning, the dogs are waking me up. So it's been fun. And I just sleep. Nothing wakes Denise up. She can sleep through a hurricane. Yes, she has, folks. She can sleep through the fire alarm going off. Yes, she has, folks. And an earthquake. Woohoo! Let's hear it for Denise. <laughs> I so sleep I, like a baby. Yeah. So if we had a haunting here, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't bother her in the least bit. Let's go ahead and share a little bit of Thanksgiving tradition in the form of Indian corn with everybody. You ready? <music> Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. the summer of saucers in 1952, three young boys saw something quite strange in Flatwoods, West Virginia. A UFO streaked through the sky and the boys watched it land at a nearby farm. Two of the boys were brothers and they ran home to tell their mother what they had seen. She went and grabbed a couple of neighbors and they all headed to the farm to see what the boys had been talking about. As they topped the hill near the farm, they saw a large ball of fire and smelled something that made their noses burn. One of the neighbors noticed something that looked like eyes in the darkness, and he shone his flashlight in that direction. The light revealed a creature that hissed when the light hit it. The creature glided away from them, and the witnesses took off running. 
They contacted the local sheriff, but he found nothing at the site. A reporter later found tracks and then started taking eyewitness accounts. It would seem that more than just the locals at this incident had seen the creature. Previously, a mother and daughter had seen a weird creature and smelled the weird ozone scent. Others would later report encounters. Witnesses claimed the creature was nearly 10 feet tall and seemed to have a metallic or robot body. Its head was round and red and encircled by a cowl shaped like the ace of spades in a deck of cards. Two large orbs that glowed a greenish-orange were thought to be its eyes. They called the entity the Phantom of Flatwoods or the Flatwoods Monster. Was this thing an alien or some other kind of weird creature? We'll never know, but it certainly was odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> this day in history. On this day, November 26, in 1703, the worst storm in British history ripped across East Anglia. The great storm of 1703 was a catastrophic hurricane with winds over 80 miles per hour that were able to lift men and animals off their feet. 2,000 chimneys were blown down in London alone and 400 windmills were destroyed. 100 churches lost their lead roofs, including Westminster Abbey. Rain lashed the country and caused flooding. Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, claimed that he witnessed a tornado snap the trunk of a large oak like it were a twig. 800 homes were destroyed, 15,000 sheep drowned, and 8,000 seamen were killed in shipwrecks. The Eddystone Rocks Lighthouse on Plymouth was wooden and so easily destroyed in the storm. The man who designed it, Henry Winstanley, was killed at that time along with five others. The storm was unprecedented and lasted a long time. It took months for the area to recover, and a day of fasting was observed. Sermons for many years after would use the great storm as part of some lesson to remind the people of humility. You're listening to History Goes Bump! The Ojibwa Native American tribe tells a legend about Indian corn that involves a member of their tribe. He lived with his family in what is today Wisconsin. It was imperative for the Native people to be able to provide for themselves via hunting, but this Ojibwa man was a terrible hunter. His children were young and not of much help to him, but they enjoyed a good relationship and he was a very content man. His eldest son grew strong and was of the same disposition as his father. The Ojibwa believed that each male had a special guardian spirit. When they approached adulthood, they were sent on their guardian spirit quest. This spirit would give the male a spirit name and special power. The eldest son set off on his quest and he worked on his first trial, which was to construct a hut. He chose an isolated location so that his dreams would not be disturbed by anything. After building the hut, he began his seven-day fast. He passed the time by taking walks in the woods and studying the plant life. He would walk far enough to ensure that he would be able to sleep soundly at night. The eldest son would find himself wondering why the plants and trees around him were able to grow so well with no one caring for them. 
It occurred to him that if his people could find the secret to this, then hunting would not be so important. After all, his father had a hard time providing for the family because his hunting skills were lacking. He decided that he would start asking for dreams about this secret. By the third day of his fast, he felt himself becoming weak. He decided to stay on his bed, and he had a vision of a young man coming out of the sky. He was coming toward the eldest son, and he was beautiful and strong. His clothing was adorned in yellows and greens. His walk was graceful, and his head had a covering of magnificent feathers. He told the son that he was, in fact, his guardian spirit, sent from the great spirit. He told the son that from now on he would be known as Wanza. He told Wanza that the great spirit was pleased with how he'd been conducting his spirit quest and that he knew the desires of Wanza's heart. The great spirit was pleased that Wanza did not seek strength or the ability to become a great warrior and instead wanted to find a way to help his family and his people. The guardian spirit said that he had been sent to test Wanza and that they must wrestle. Wanza was faint and unsure, but he took strength in the desire of his heart and he wrestled to the best of his ability. He was not able to beat his guide, but he also did not lose either. His guardian told him that he would return the next day. The following day, the two wrestled again, and Wenza still was not able to win. On the third day, the guardian told Wenza that he must win the wrestling that day. Wenza prayed to the great spirit for strength. His limbs were weak, but his determination was strong. He wrestled hard, and after the same amount of time had passed as had in the previous two days' wrestling matches, the guardian stopped and declared Wenza the winner. He led Wenza to the hut and told him that tomorrow would be his final day of fasting. He reminded Wenza that his father would be bringing him food to break the seven-day fast, and he informed Wenza that he would have to wrestle him again. He told Wenza that he must fight hard and that when he defeated the guardian, that he must strip him naked and bury him in a place in the soil that has been cleared of roots and weeds. The yellow and green clothing that the guardian wore was to be placed on top of him before burial. The guardian spirit continued that Wenza must leave his body in the earth, but that he was to come visit the grave. When he visited, he was to make sure no weeds were growing on the grave, and he was to place fresh dirt atop the grave. He promised Wenza that if he did these things, then he would have the desire of his heart, and his family and people would be helped. The two shook hands, and the guardian left. Wenza's father arrived the next morning and gave his son food. The father commented that the son had done well, and that he should eat so that he would not die and he asked his son to return home with him. Wenza said that he could not leave yet and that he had personal reasons for this. His father told him that he would wait for him at home until the setting of the sun. The guardian returned just as the sun was ready to set, and he and Wenza wrestled. Wenza had not eaten any food yet, but he felt an inner strength. The strength felt supernatural. He grabbed the guardian and threw him to the ground, and the guardian lay still. He was dead. Wenza quickly followed the directions that he had been given earlier, believing that his guardian would rise again. Wenza returned home, but all spring and summer he tended the grave, removing grass and weeds and placing fresh dirt upon the grave. After some time, Wenza noticed the curious plumes of some kind of plant pressing up through the earth, and the more he cared for the grave and these plants, the faster they grew. Wenza had told no one of what he was doing, but when summer came to an end, he invited his father to join him at the site of his spirit quest. His father was amazed to see when they arrived tall stalks of green plants topped with yellow silken hair. Bursting from the stalks were gold and green clusters of fruit. Wenza explained to his father that the plants were from his guardian spirit. My spirit's name is Mondamin, and that means corn for all people. This was my heart's secret wish, and now it's been answered. 
We will not have to hunt every day for food anymore. If we care for this corn gift, the earth will continue to feed us. He gave the first ear of corn to his father. Wenzel continued by explaining all the things that Mondalman had told him to do in regards to the corn. He showed his father how to remove the ears of corn. He explained that they needed to save the first seeds in order to plant more corn the next season. He even showed his father how to cook the corn near the flames of the fire while still in the husk, just long enough to get the kernels to taste sweet and juicy. The family gathered for a feast of corn and gave thanks to the Great Spirit for this gift. They ate heartedly and always remembered how to care for their corn. This is how Wanza came to be known as the father of Indian corn. Bet you didn't know that's where corn came from. No, but when they talk about a feast of corn, I remember the first time I had corn on the cob with your family. Yeah, we used to grow, we had a little garden in the backyard when I was growing up, and my dad would grow a bunch of corn, and we'd have dinner would just be corn on corn. the cob. Corn on the cob, yep. For, Denise for was, ears each or something Yeah, like Denise that. was not used to that. She was used to her mom, but you'd get maybe, what, a half of ear of corn? She would usually break them in half and that you'd have like half an ear of corn with your So dinner. we kept telling you, nope, you get another big one. Nope, you get another big one. You were like, wow. And I love eating corn this way where it's on the open flame. That makes for some good corn. Yes, it does. For Native American tribes, corn is considered one of the three sisters. The other two are squash and beans. And many tribes considered corn to be a god. Because corn was either considered to be a god or a gift from God, many times it was used in ceremonial rites and dress. It was given as a spiritual offering as well. Native Americans called corn by different names. The term maize was Spanish in origin. The Algonquin that we mentioned on the last episode used the terms hominy, pone, and succotash to describe their dishes they made from corn. The Cree used the term sagamite, and the Aztecs called corn chicha. The Pueblo have a corn dance, and other tribes have corn clans. These tribes include the Mojave, the Navajo, the Muscogee Creek, and the Pueblo. The Ojibwa tribe that give us the legend of Indian corn is better known as the Chippewa. They lived in the northern part of America in areas that would become the states of North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. They also lived in what is today Canada and actually are the second largest tribe there presently. Their name means original people. The tribe was broken up into clans and they lived in family units. They used birch trees to fashion canoes and built homes that are called wigwams. Today, they live on reservations and continue to keep their customs as best they can. One group they formed that continues today is the Grand Medicine Society that is a secret order open to men and women that conducts esoteric ceremonies believed to bring supernatural assistance to members. Members are generally thought to be shaman and seers, and many of the rituals are used for healing purposes. To become a full member, an initiate goes through a death and rebirth inside a medicine lodge. There are four degrees of initiation, and when they are done, the individual is thought to have the power of healing and the ability to be victorious in growing food and battle. The Ojibwa brings us more than just the legend of Indian corn. They also have a legend about an entity known as the Wendigo. And Denise, I've heard this said multiple ways. I've heard it as Wendigo, Windigo. I'm going to say Wendigo. That just sounds the way that I would think the Native Americans would say it. Okay. And as always, if our listeners know for sure, let us know. The Wendigo is a fearsome, nasty-looking creature. It appears as though it were a half-starved wolf with its eyes deep in its sockets, the skin pulled taut against bones, and a gray complexion. The creature has very skinny and elongated limbs with the body and head of a wolf. Some describe it looking like a Bigfoot creature. And the legend claims that this beast really is a human that is transformed, similar to the tales of werewolves. The Native American people were generally against the eating of human flesh, 
but some tribes did take part in such things. The legend of the Wendigo has origins in cannibalism. It more than likely was to solidify the taboo of cannibalism by claiming that those who indulged in such practices might become susceptible to the disorder that would cause them to become a Wendigo. Others believe the Wendigo is a demonic spirit and that it can possess men. A Cree man named Swift Runner was starving one winter along with his family. After the death of his eldest son from starvation, Swift Runner seemed to lose his mind. He killed his wife and remaining five children. He then ate them. Swift Runner admitted what he had done to the authorities and was put to death. Some claimed that he suffered from something called Wendigo psychosis. But could he have been possessed by the spirit of a Wendigo? I guess this is a scientific term. There's a lot of controversy about it, whether it is a real psychosis, but it basically is an obsession with eating human flesh. And so they found there's many stories throughout the years of these people who've gone crazy and cannibalized family or other people, specifically when they were in a starvation kind of mode. But uh, I don't know if I believe that there is such a psychosis. I mean, obviously, if you're eating human beings and it's not out of, say, something that like the movie Alive, where this is your last resort and, and the human people beings, have already I died. Believe, and yeah. I believe they said, please, if I if I perish so that you can survive. Yeah, but. that I can understand cannibalism in those kinds of instances. I don't know that I myself could partake, but with this Wendigo psychosis, we're talking about actually killing people and eating them you know, some serial killers like out there Jeffrey might do. Dahmer. Exactly. So I don't know that I would call it necessarily that kind of psychosis, just a generalized psychosis. And Denise is over there doing her best impression of Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> that, that stupid thing through her teeth. <laughs> I don't know if it'll come through. You do, do it on the microphone, see if it comes through. Oh, God. Ugh. So just for the record, that is one scary movie I have seen, and it freaked me out. Well, you have no problem pretending you're Hannibal Lecter, obviously. Just that one part because it creeps you out. (laughs) (laughs) Canadian folklore tells the tale of an Ojibwa that came face to face with the Wendigo. He was hunting alone in the forest when he came upon some bloody footprints in the snow. Then he heard a strange hissing sound. He could not see what creature might be making the sound. He heard the hissing again, but instead of it being to the side of him, it sounded like it was coming from the front. And then he heard it again behind him. He whipped around with his heart pounding. He could not see what was hissing. He feared a Wendigo was hunting him. His father had warned him about this cannibalistic creature. He gripped his spear and knife hard. He began to back away from the bloody footprints. A creature sprang from behind a snowbank and hurtled itself towards him. The man threw his spear at the creature, but it seemed to be of little help. He rolled himself in snow and dove behind a tree. The Wendigo was sniffing the air for him and looking around. As it approached the hiding place, the young man jumped out and stabbed the Wendigo in the eye. It howled in pain, and he jammed the knife in the other eye. He stabbed at the creature's head multiple times. The Wendigo collapsed on the man, nearly crushing him. He pulled himself free and saw that the creature was dead. The warrior was shaken, but he was alive, and he returned home. So does the Wendigo really exist? That is for you to decide. If it does, I never want to meet it. Me either. You know, Denise, what this reminds me of is when we had that interview that we did with Linda Godfrey, who wrote The Beast of Bray Road. Oh, yeah. And the creatures that people would see the red eyes and it looked almost wolf-like, but kind of man-like. Exactly. Denise and I used to do a live. It was very short-lived, but we did a live show that I tacked on to my political show. 
Yeah, and it was short-lived because that sleeping thing, I would sleep <laughs> through taping a show as well. Yeah, that's why I would say that Denise really didn't do any kind of broadcasting till we did the podcast because I would look over. We wouldn't start until nine o'clock at night and I'd look over and be like, why isn't she asking any questions? And she'd be totally passed out on the desk. Well, okay. In my defense, though, we would do this thing from nine until 11 p.m. And you did work very early. And I had to get up at three to go to work <laughs> and then doing everything else. And so, yeah, pretty much if I stopped moving, I, I slept. But this reminds me of the creatures that she would talk about because she talked a lot about the dog man werewolves and these are all very similar it makes you wonder as we've discussed before when it comes to bigfoot i mean you've got bigfoot you've got the yeti is it all the same creature with different names depending upon the region that they're in or are these actually different creatures i don't know and and kind of like what you're saying diane it's weird that none of them have ever been found like carcasses and is this just something that erupted from an urban legend where they found some starving Indian family that was feeding off of a dead loved one or something and this Wendigo creature sprang from that? Kind of like the chicken and the egg, which came first. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever way, I don't want to ever meet one, that's for sure. Me either. Hey, Denise, what's your favorite part of Thanksgiving dinner? Probably mashed potatoes and gravy. That's mine too, I think. I do lean a little bit towards stuffing because I really love stuffing, too. And the dark meat on the turkey. Oh, yeah. The white meat on the turkey. (laughs) Well, I'm really looking forward to getting into ours. We're going to be hosting at our house. Yay. Denise just loves to do her cooking, so that'll be fun. We'd invite all of you guys to come, but some of you would have to come from quite quite a distance. Yep, but if you come, just let us know. We'll set a place at we'll the table. We'll set an extra place, exactly. Well, you guys, you have a very happy Thanksgiving 2015. Thanks for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been Levi Drescher, Dan Foytick, Janice Carlson, Stephen Pappas, Heather Williams, David Ann Student, Amy Connor, Tanya Turner, Nicole Johnson, Leanna Sapien, Jade Lewis, April Rogers Crick, Laura Davis, Seth Crawford, Tracy Duhon, Josh Wood, Laura S., and Barbara Metz-Goudreau. Thank you. Society's rise and society's fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast. Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.